Welcome to the Reality Check Podcast. I'm Zachary Phillips. In today's episode, I want to talk about expanding your mind through travel and reading. So before we get into it, I just wanted to update you guys on a couple of things. I'm going to be doing an Ask Me Anything podcast fairly soon, so please feel free to private message me some questions that you have or comment on any of my social media at Zach P. Phillips or at the bottom of this podcast, wherever you happen to find it, and I'll be happy to answer your questions. Um, secondly, I'm excited to say that I've released my first book, Under the Influence, as an audiobook now, and in a couple of weeks' time, I'm going to release a chapter from that book as a podcast episode, as well as a blog post. So I'm really excited about this, and I hope you are too. So be on the lookout for that. I also wanted to update you on the progress of my next book. I'm calling it How to Get Your Shit Together. And basically, it's a combination of all of the different things that I've found that have really helped me to overcome a traumatic past and deal with mental health and mental illness issues, both in the moment and ongoing, as well as move beyond that and start pursuing my dreams and goals and aspirations. And to a better, to a greater extent, how I've worked out myself and what I want to strive for and how I'm going to process that. So I, I took a bit of time off from everything to write it. And of course, writing a book takes a lot longer than you always expect it to be. So I've still got it in the works. It's coming together and I'll keep you updated as we're going along. But basically, if you appreciate any of the advice that you're getting from my videos or my blogs or my podcasts, you'll love this book because it's putting all, all of that together in one handy resource and it'll it'll be all in one place. And on top of um, advice of what I found work have worked for me, I'm going to put in a fairly detailed resource section that has a bunch of self-help books and YouTube channels and a bunch of other resources that I personally listen to and read and consume myself that I think you guys should be getting into as well. So be on the lookout for that and I'll keep you updated. And the final thing before we get into this podcast that I wanted to discuss was the Share Your Story blog. So the Share Your Story blog is basically a platform in which I'm inviting people to share their story. And it doesn't have to be about mental health and mental illness related things. It can be. But the idea is that I want to provide a platform for people to share an aspect of their lives in which other people that aren't living it wouldn't really get to experience. You know, if you work in a particular industry, you'll think that what you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis is just run-of-the-mill. But to someone not in that industry, it's quite novel and new. And the same thing for people with a variety of upbringings or different hobbies or a whole variety of different things. So what I want to do is provide you with an opportunity to share your story and a platform to put that out. And for those that are or do have a similar similar issues to what I have, you know, struggling with mental illness or overcoming some trauma from a past or something like that. People that have submitted their stories that have those sort of pasts have come back and said to me that they're very grateful for the opportunity and the push to write about it. And that's sort of the, the other reason why I started this project is because through writing my own book about my own past and doing this podcast and blog and all that sort of stuff, I found tremendous benefit to my own mental health, because it allowed me to express and sort of get my head around what happened and sort of 
take ownership of it. And people that have written their own stories into me have expressed similar things. They've they've thanked me for the push because it's caused them to to sort of move on and take ownership and let go of the trauma of their pasts. So if you're interested in sharing your story, please head over to zachary-phillips.com forward slash share your story. Check out what's up there and make contact with me via the website or on my social media at Zach P. Phillips. I'm not really concerned about your writing style or type because, you know, everyone expresses themselves differently and I'll write different to you and you'll write different to the next person. I just want to see an expression of a story and of emotion and of a change that you've gone through. So check it out, submit a story and yeah, thank you. So I wanted to start this podcast with a quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes. The quote is, A mind stretched by a new experience can never go back to its old dimensions. This quote is on my mind because I've recently returned from an overseas holiday to Indonesia and my mind has been substantially stretched and I wanted to discuss with you some of the things that I've learned in my travels. The main one is is that there's no correct way to be a human. And this keeps coming up whenever I read a book and now when I've been traveling. But basically, it's very easy to look at your own culture and your own life and your own history and go, well, surely everyone must live like this. And I remember growing up and thinking, well, you know, surely everyone's parents are split up because mine were. Surely everyone's father is a drug addict because mine was. Surely everyone has the same experiences that I do. And obviously, the older you get, the more you realize how ridiculous those sort of thoughts are. But unless you travel or read widely, it's very easy to still maintain that belief sort of on a societal sort of on a societal level. So when I travel to a country like Indonesia that speaks a different language that I don't speak and has quite a significantly different past to my country and different values and all of that sort of stuff, I'm faced with the fact that the way that I see life and reality and what should and shouldn't be done socially and all of that sort of stuff is just one of the many ways that humans live. So with that in mind, it's 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 sort of humbling and empowering in the sense that if I'm facing a problem in my life or I'm not sure about my goals, or let's say, you know, I don't have as much money, or I'm not fulfilling the quote-unquote goals or aspirations that my society dictates that I should have, I can be comforted in the fact that those goals and aspirations are only valued by my society. They're not necessarily valued by every society. And a case in point is the seemingly combination of work and social life that Indonesians have. Now, obviously, everything I say in this podcast is my external perspective of what I saw and observed and interacted with, and I'm sure that if I grew up in Indonesia or another country, I would see it from a more nuanced and more correct perspective, but obviously, I can only talk from my own. So, what I noticed was that Indonesians are very social. You'll be talking to someone or bartering with people, and just for those that aren't unaware, there's rarely fixed prices on things. So you'll go to a shop and 
you'll go to buy something and there won't be a price tag. So you enter this negotiation sort of thing with the person. And in that negotiation with the person selling to you, you discover their family life and what they're into and they're talking to you. And basically, you really get to know the person that you're buying off. And if you're buying something that's quite expensive, this process can go on back and forth for quite a long time. You might even have a meal with the person. If it's a small thing, you know, it's the interaction's fairly limited. But what I noticed is that they're very social and they'll ask a lot of personal questions and get to know you and you get to know them over time. And in addition to that, people will be working, but they're very social as they're working. There's this happiness and smile on everyone's face that I just don't see out and about in the West. And, you know, I, I, I really appreciate the value of that social aspect of life that seems they seem to have got that down pat a lot more than we do. However, on the, on the counter side to that, there seems to be a lot of inefficiency from a completely business management perspective. You know, I was thinking about how hard it would be for a traditional Western country to, um, company to come into Indonesia and try and instill those Western corporate structures and efficiency and effectiveness and all of that sort of stuff that seems to be a trademark of Western businesses because, well, from my perspective, Indonesians just wouldn't work like that and they they just sort of, that's just sort of not how they function. And this was really made apparent when I went into the more Western-based businesses, the ones that did have fixed prices on their goods and the ones that were set up to look more more like a traditional Western shop. The the people serving in those shops seemed comparatively very depressed compared to everyone else that I saw. They were always fairly glum and didn't look at you in the eye and didn't ask anything about you and were just, well, frankly, they seemed the same as a lot of Western workers in, you know, in menial serving jobs because that's what they'd become. But they actually seemed a bit sadder about it because it's such a difference to what other people in in their community were working as so i guess i guess the summary of all this is for me personally i value socializing and mental health and all of that sort of stuff over money working in indonesia seems a lot more condu- conducive to mental health. Less like, quote unquote, work would get done, but because you're socializing and effectively living, you sort of get to live and enjoy your life whilst you're working. So there's a lot more. It's just a different way of looking at things. So the lesson that I learned from that is, is that when I'm working, I should try and be more social and connect with people on a deeper level. And in addition to that is If I choose a more mental health approach to my work or a more social connection approach to my work, and that subsequently results in less actual money or not, you know, missing out on a promotion and all that sort of stuff, that's okay. It's just a different way of being a human. Another thing that I noticed about life in Indonesia is that people rely on each other a lot more. And... This could be due to the socioeconomic issues in the country. You know, there's a lot more poverty and people earn a lot less. So they're sort of forced to 
to help each other and rely on that help from each other. And contrary to expectations, I actually think that that results in better mental health. And if, if I want you to consider reading the book Tribe by Sebastian Junger, he suggests in this book that when you relate, when you need help from other people and when the society that you're in needs you, you actually feel needed and wanted and important in that sense. If you think about a lot of people living in the West, if Western society and, you know, your little community, your local community, and potentially even your family could probably go on and survive without you. The government would pick up the pick up the slack or, you know, someone else would fill your job and you personally are not that needed because, you know, our society is just set up that way. However, in poorer areas or, you know, areas where there's more natural danger or that sort of stuff, each individual is needed a lot more. And I found that when I went to Indonesia, people were relying on each other a lot. And they subsequently feel needed. And if you feel needed, you will feel less depressed and less have less mental issues. And and that's another thing I want to try and bring back to my life here. You know, I look around my street and everyone has a lawn. But rather than, you know, buying one lawnmower and sharing it between us all, everyone has their own lawnmower. Why? Why don't we just share and interact? And I think I think it's very easy to isolate ourselves because we don't need other people. You know, I can I can afford to buy my own lawn lawnmower, and so can the next person, and so can the person after that. So why would I interact with someone for that lawnmower? And if you extrapolate that to every aspect of your family and social life and all of that sort of stuff, you can find yourself being able to survive without the need to interact with anyone. You know, we have it so quote, easy over here that I can get on my phone and go to menu log and order my food, pay via credit card and get my food delivered to my door. And the only interaction I have is with any person is opening the door, taking the food and closing the door. So I can effectively survive without almost any social interaction at all. So contrast that to the need to interact with people on a daily basis to survive. And you can see which one would fulfill the social needs of, you know, us, the human animal, more so. Another aspect of this is the island I was on, um, Lombok, is, I think, 98 or 99% Muslim. And I've never stayed in a predominantly Muslim community before. I've worked in Muslim school, but I haven't sort of lived it. And one of the one of the really nice things I found was the playing of the call to prayer via the speakers out loud, as well as other communal music. And it it I found it nice because every I think it was about five times a day, the call to prayer would come on. And it was just sort of this reminder to everyone in the community that they're all connected based on something. And in this case, it's religion. So the call to prayer plays and everyone sort of gets that, once again, that collective communal nature. And, you know, at a, at a later stage, it was the Indonesian celebration of independence from occupation and music was playing all night. And there were celebrations on the streets and everyone's talking to each other and it was like, you know, festive. 
and at another time, you know, people getting together in a drum circle and just jamming. And, you know, this music was, you could hear it from the streets and it was happening everywhere. And I just realized that, you know, once again, for the most part in the West, we don't really have that communal connection. You know, where, where do you get music played out loud or and just being accepted with it. You know, we have house parties, but everyone that isn't in that house party, the neighbors, are pissed off at you for playing that music. It's just it's just another difference that that I've seen. And you know, obviously there's you know, I'm I'm not talking about the ethics or the idea behind religion in the sense of you know, the morals and ethics and all that sort of stuff about the religion because it's not really about that. It was more about the effect on the culture and the community connection that the music playing out loud has. Another thing I wanted to address, and this is, I'm not really sure how to feel about this one, is the changing of culture. So, obviously, cultures throughout time will change when there's a blending between different countries or different places. You know, it's happened throughout history. But in my perspective, what I've seen is in the tourist areas of Lombok, Indonesia, there's obviously a skew towards the tourist dollar and people can earn substantially more catering towards the needs of the tourists. So the tourists come in, they've got a lot of money because they can afford to travel and they want a local experience. So the people, the locals start changing themselves and changing what they're offering and all that sort of stuff and their jobs start changing to be able to provide a comfortable experience to the tourists because if they don't someone else will and that tourist money goes and who can blame every individual for wanting to provide a better life for themselves and their family so i can see why everyone there would be tempted to sort of shift their culture towards towards that tourist money you know and if you think about it from the tourist perspective when you go to another country you want to have the authentic experience however a lot of tourists, if you think about it a bit deeper, they don't want the true authentic experience. They just want a taste of it. They want a partial true experience. They want to be exposed to the culture, but also feel comfortable. You know, like some examples would be the toilets. Traditional Indonesian toilets are squat toilets in which you squat over a hole and then rather than using toilet paper, you spray water onto yourself and wipe yourself with your hand to clean yourself. Now, some people I'm sure would want to experience that, but in all of the the more tourist-based restaurants, they all had Western toilets. However, if you went to a non-tourist restaurant or a non-tourist area, they had the traditional toilets there. And, you know, there's more and more and more examples of all of this sort of stuff. But the point is, is that going to another country, you might want to experience it, their culture, but you've grown accustomed to your own upbringing. And most people have creature comforts and things that they, they're comfortable living with and don't really want to give that up. But they want to have some change. So what this does is it causes the culture and what's happening in those communities to start shifting. So what what I discovered was, for example, traditionally Indonesians would rise at sunrise, do their farming and that sort of stuff and go to bed at sunset. However, 
tourists typically rise later and go to bed later. So they're changing that in their local area. Same thing with food. Traditionally, Westerns will eat less spicy food than the Indonesians themselves. So the food there is changing. And same thing with aspirations for job opportunities and and their own futures. By having tourists come in and talk about what they're doing and that sort of stuff, it's changing the traditional nature of their communities in terms of aspirations for, for, for jobs and travel and a whole right, whole range of other things. Now, once again, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. And it makes sense why each individual would want to change to, you know, earn a better living for their family. But on the whole, when everyone's doing it, it's easy to see a shift from where they are to a more of a sort of combination between their traditional culture and the cultures of the tourists coming in. And maybe that'll make a new hybrid culture that'll become its own thing. And it's obviously, like I said, it's always happened throughout history. So these changes, whilst they will occur and continue to occur, and nothing can really be done to impact that changes, I'm not really sure how I feel about it. Because on the one hand, I I have that that maybe it's like, you know, that traditional guilt of how how the West seems to impose its culture on everyone, you know, the TV and the technology and the values and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of those values and that sort of stuff, I don't actually really appreciate that much. And, you know, I don't like the idea of traditional culture being lost. However, there are issues with traditional cultures in terms of, you know, uh, women's rights and gay rights and a whole plethora of other issues that, you could easily pick apart. So it's more of an observation that I've realized is that cultures will keep changing. And I suppose on top of that, that to be aware that our culture will keep changing. And and I suppose this leads on to me considering or, or you know, the return to my own country and my own sort of hometown. I'm seeing it from a bit of a detached perspective, almost like that slight counter- culture shock that you get. So I'm coming back and I'm sort of looking around. I'm going, yeah, I really like this aspects about my hometown and stuff, but man, I wish it was a bit more like this, or I wish there was a bit more of this stuff, you know, like the pleasantries and the social connections that I see that I saw over there. I'd like to bring some of that back. Another thing that I want to address is the concept of traveling with a novel. Whenever I travel, I like to choose a novel that I've never read before and, to a deeper extent, an author I've never read before and read it on the holiday. And that way, whenever I remember the holiday, the the joy of reading the book will come up. And whenever the book in my mind comes up, I'll remember the holiday. So this time I decided to take Jodie Picoult's My Sister's Keeper. And I've put a video online and I'll link you to it where I talk about it. But Basically, if if you do travel, try this and you'll see that there's tremendous benefit in doing so because you're getting these deeper connections and you'll find that you're traveling and expanding your mind when you're out and about and then you get home and you're doing it again. And this, this will cause, you know, deep connections and changes to happen in your brain and you'll start 
it, it, it's a way of sort of solidifying those lessons learned and those gains that you've gotten from your travels. So give it a shot. Check out the video that I post, um, that I'll post in the links below talking about where I talk about my experience reading that particular book. But by the way, it's highly recommended. Please give it a shot. But if you do go traveling, read a book along, take a book that you've never read along with you and read it and you'll keep remembering both and both will trigger each other. And that's a really good thing. The final thing I want to address is putting limitations on people. So I traveled to Indonesia with my wife and my eight-month-old son, and this was the first major holiday that we've been on. And it's about a seven-and-a-half to eight-hour trip, followed by, like, a plane trip, followed by another one-hour plane ride plus a one-hour taxi ride. So all in all, and you know, including a wait over at the airports. So all in all, my son was probably about 12 to 14 hours sort of pent up in a car and a couple of planes and in the airports. And we thought it was going to be hell. We were like, oh my God, this is going to suck. We're going to be that family with the crying baby. And it was just, we were, I was you know quite anxious about that whole thing. However, my son, Archer, is a champion. He he was better than I could have ever imagined. So good, in fact, on the way home, as the plane, you know, as we disembarked to to arrive at home, the the family in front of us turned around and saw that we had a baby, and they were like, "Oh my god, we didn't even know there was a baby there." And what that taught me is to not put limitations on people, even young people like a child or a baby. Because we expected him to go poorly and we were sort of getting all that anxiety and all that sort of stuff, but it didn't happen. He he proved to us throughout the holiday time and time again that he's a lot more resilient than we, were, we gave him credit for. And I guess what I learned from this is when you do put limitations on people, you're, you're restricting your view of them to, 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 you're confining their ability to perform or be themselves. So let's say, you know, and, and also like don't put limitations on yourself because like, let's say you go, oh, I can only run one kilometer, you know, anymore and I'll get tired and lethargic. Well, when you're running and you get to that one kilometer, you're going to start lagging and failing. Whereas if you don't put a limitation on yourself, you might be able to go way more. And you know, same thing when you're putting it on other people. If you suggest to someone, oh, you'll struggle with this or you'll do poorly. Like as a teacher, we were told not to frame tests or things in a negative light because it actually causes a statistically significant drop in performance on the tests. So if you phrase it saying, this is a really hard test compared to, you'll find this test quite easy, guys. They'll perform differently on the exact same test. So I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is, you know, watching my son just be an absolute champion really made me overtly uh, overtly aware of the limitations that I place on myself and on other people, in where where instead I should really not put the limitations on anyone and just see what they can do, because you know people people can do a lot more than than what they think and what you think, and if you put the limitations on them you might be confining them more so. Obviously, I've learned a lot from 
from these travels and a lot of stuff keep coming keeps coming back up and I'll probably post some more videos about it too. But real, what I really want to know is where have you traveled and what lessons have you learned from that travel? Please comment and tell me because for one, I really want to learn more lessons and two, I want ideas of where to travel myself. So comment below, tell me where you've traveled and tell me the lessons you've learned and let's have a discussion. Thanks. If you're enjoying the Reality Check podcast, there's a couple of ways that you can support it. The best way is by spreading the word, you know, share the links, talk to people and tell them to listen. But if you want to do a bit more than that, there's a couple of other things you could do. The first one would be to head over to my website and purchase a copy of my book, Under the Influence. It's out now as a paperback, ebook, and audio book. And a more direct way to support the podcast would also be through my Patreon. And a Patreon is basically a way that you can do once-off donations or ongoing monthly donations to basically help creators to keep the content coming. Because, you know, if you think about it, it takes a lot of time and effort to record and edit and upload and maintain a website and respond to comments and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, you don't have to donate much. If you think about it, a $4 donation is basically like buying me a coffee. And, you know, as as you probably realize, writers love coffee. So if you head over to to my website, and I'll put the link down below on my support page, there's a few options. And from there, you can choose how you'd like to support me. Um, but yeah, I really, really quite enjoy my, um, my cups of coffee. So, you know, please maybe buy me a cup of coffee. <laughs> Thanks.